is Tom, and welcome to a new episode of the History Matters podcast. The aim of these podcasts is to go into some depth on various, mostly modern, historical issues with a particular emphasis on military and diplomatic history. And this episode of History Matters is part two of two, so it will be continuing on with Sweden in the First World, but purely to give my voice a bit of a break, and so as not to have one super long episode. I also won't go through my list of the best English language historiography for this episode, as it remains essentially the same as last week. So if you're curious about any of the reading, then just give the intro to last week's podcast a quick listen. However, I am still going to be starting things off with a little bit of music, and this week is not a national or royal anthem, but a marching song used by the Swedish artillery, which I felt was broadly thematically appropriate due to the dominance of artillery in the First World War, even if, obviously, artillery of the Swedish variety was never actually used. Anyway, here is a little bit of the artillery song. enough of that, although a military march does lead us on quite nicely to a look at Sweden's own defence capability and armed forces during the First World War. At the outbreak of the war, Swedish defence expenditures had been growing steadily for decades. In addition to the fortifications already mentioned in the last podcast, the new conscript army had its period of enlistment extended from 30 to 240 days and a fleet of modern coastal battleships were constructed. A defence bill in 1914 enlarged the army from 6 to 12 infantry divisions, along with a more lightly equipped cavalry division. All of the major Swedish political parties relied around the 1914 defence bill, and the Social Democrats and Liberals accepted without protest the heavy increase in spending that the Hammarskjöld defence bill entailed. On paper, this was to be an exceptionally large force for a small European neutral, in theory, large enough to go on the offensive and mount operations in Finland. Yet in reality, equipment of all sorts was severely lacking. Even uniforms were in short supply for the 200,000 conscripts now listed in the mobilisation tables. The 1914 Defence Bill was little more than a statement of intent. For example, in 1914, a typical Swedish infantry division had 24 machine guns available to it, roughly the same number as in an equivalent formation from any of the great powers. By 1918, however, the French division possessed 108 heavy and 405 light machine guns, whereas the poor Swedish division still only possessed 24. Again, the same was true for heavier weapons, with a Swedish infantry battalion having just over three field cannons for support throughout the war, compared to 8.4 in a German army and 12 in a French army by 1918. The more limited Swedish industrial base was being stretched too thin over too many units, and the resulting formations would have been of questionable use in any conflict with the belligerents, although I may have been able to give a significantly better account against the somewhat weaker Russian divisions. Many of the proposed new Swedish divisions never even moved out of reserve status, and at no single time during the war years did the Swedish army end up keeping more than 13,000 men under arms. 
By the summer of 1918, when the fighting on the Western Front reached a crescendo, the Swedish army was reduced to fewer than 2,000 active personnel. In terms of the Swedish Navy, unlike the Norwegian and Danish fleets, the Svenska Marinen was still a considerable force in 1914, one that had to be factored into the equations regarding the strategic balance between Russia and Germany, possessing 12 coastal battleships of varying capability, as well as a large number of cruisers, monitors, destroyers and torpedo ships. Despite the passing of a new naval construction programme in Russia in 1912, Swedish naval planners still felt confident that their fleet, in conjunction with naval mines and coastal artillery, was capable of containing the threat of a Russian invasion along the central or southern coastlines, thus confining any possible Russian offensive to an attack originating in northern Finland. From 1912 onwards, the growing strength of the Imperial German Navy meant that the Swedish naval staff also discarded the possibility of British naval operations in the Baltic Sea during a major European war. The main burden of defending Swedish neutrality during the war largely fell on the Swedish Navy, and consisted of escorting cargo ships through Swedish coastal waters and defusing drifting mines, as well as attempting to halt the activities of British submarines operating from bases in Russia. When the war ended in 1918, the Swedish Navy had escorted 3,640 cargo ships along the Swedish coast and defused more than 2,800 mines at the cost of 30 lives. Perhaps the most famous incident involving the Swedish Navy during the war was the impounding of the German mine-laying cruiser Albatross in July of 1915, after the ship had been attempting to lay mines around the Arlen Islands before being ambushed by a Russian cruiser force and then fleeing into Swedish waters and beaching itself on the island of Gotland. Both the ship and crew were then interned by the Swedish Navy. In terms of an air force, Sweden, like all the other small European neutrals, possessed only a few reconnaissance aircraft to help spot neutrality breaches, and even by 1918 there were no more than a few dozen, mostly unarmed aircraft, operated by both the Navy and the Army, often funded by private donations and based on copies of French aircraft, as France was generally considered to be the leading nation for aerial development at the time. Sweden established its first airbase at Axval in south-central Sweden, and it became unfortunately notorious among the early Swedish pilots for being a horrible location due to the presence of so many power lines ringing the base. And now we come to look at Sweden's economy under the strains of the First World War. In theory, the Swedish economy looks set to be devastated, as its two main export commodities, iron ore and timber, were promptly listed as contraband by the British and the Germans respectively. Yet in reality, this ruination did not occur, as both sides wished to continue to reap the benefits of free trade with Sweden. For example, Germany continued to import Swedish horses, which were seen as so valuable to the German army that Berlin proved willing to allow Sweden to continue its valuable timber trade with Britain throughout the war. Swedish geography may have sheltered it to a certain extent from direct military threats, but out of all the European neutrals, it was perhaps the most vulnerable, besides Denmark, to having its trade disrupted by both the German Baltic fleet, in addition to the more distant blockade practiced by the Royal Navy. The German fleet did continue to periodically seize and search Swedish vessels, but Germany's contraband lists were never as extensive nor as vigorously enforced as the equivalent list produced by the Anglo-French governments, and Swedish timber continued to find its way to Britain. Although exports of Swedish foodstuffs to Germany was not negligible, they never played as significant a role as with Denmark or the Netherlands, and most agricultural products were consumed domestically. Given its relative importance, Sweden's iron ore export deserves its own discussion. 
Throughout the war, Sweden's oil production was actually maintained steady at the average pre-war level of 6-7 million tonnes per year. However, the final destination of Sweden's iron ore exports were forced to change drastically. For example, the famous iron ore fields at Yalivora in remote Lapland produced on average 1.2 million tonnes of iron ore annually, which had previously made its way to the Entart nations by the Swedish port of Luleå on the Baltic coast. But whereas the German navy might have been willing to tolerate Swedish timber exports to the west, it was no longer willing to permit this valuable iron ore route, and instead the ore from this field was diverted to fuel the German war effort. By 1915 alone, Germany consumed over 4 million tonnes of this high-grade iron ore a year. Although in general, Germany was the big winner from the disruption of traditional patterns of Swedish iron ore trade, it was not all completely one-sided. For instance, the Swedish iron ore fields at Kiruna, the northernmost town in Sweden, were connected to the Norwegian port of Narvik by rail, and so could continue shipping to Britain without risking the wrath of the Imperial German Navy. Previously these fields had shipped 70% of its ore southwards to Germany, but this was reduced during the war to 5%, with the few Swedish ships that did attempt to sail the Narvik-Germany route reduced to surreptitiously hugging the Norwegian coastline in an attempt to evade the Royal Navy and reach the relative safety of Germany's Baltic ports. Ultimately, however, Britain certainly lost out in comparison with Germany, as it received only five to 600,000 tonnes annually during the war. Yet Britain in this period, just like Germany, was vitally dependent on this trade, and in June of 1916, the entire British national stock of iron ore was only at 253,000 tonnes, and any reduction in Swedish iron ore exports would have seen this slim safety margin promptly vanish. This iron ore trade, in conjunction with Sweden's modest high-quality armaments industry, would help furnish Sweden with significantly greater negotiating leverage than most other European neutrals, with the possible exception of Switzerland, who as already seen in a previous podcast, possessed a similarly valuable capital-intensive industrial sector so vital to the waging of modern war. British economic intelligence was not blind to activity such as the favourable Swedish export of iron ore to Germany, and it wanted from Sweden the same guarantees that were in the process of being extracted from all other European neutrals. Namely, it wanted guarantees that any Swedish imports allowed to pass through the British blockade would not then be re-exported, at great profit, to feed the German war economy. Swedish business had certainly seized the opportunity for greater profits in its dealings with the demands of the German war economy, and by January of 1915, its exports to Germany had increased eightfold as compared to the previous year. Despite the British willingness to blacklist companies that, in its view, put profit before principle, Swedish trade across the Baltic with Germany continued throughout the war at unprecedentedly high levels. Yet when confronted with this British demand, Sweden differed from many of the other European neutrals in its response as Hammerskold refused to countenance British interference in Sweden's legal right to continue free trade as a neutral and had no desire to commit an unneutral act by willingly participating in British economic blockade warfare. As a result, Sweden refused to discuss her export regulations with the British and also declined to provide them with any statistics. The Swedish government was taking a major economic gamble by taking on the Entente, but Hammerskjöld believed Sweden possessed several advantages that could be used to negotiate more favourable terms. Firstly was the indirect pressure the Swedish army placed on Imperial Russia, as Sweden had, as already discussed, 12 divisions on paper with which to threaten action in Russian-held Finland. This indirect threat led the Russian government to constantly beseech its Western counterparts to moderate their blockade policy towards Sweden. 
This greater Swedish economic leverage, resulting from its better overall military situation, can be seen from a note made by the British Minister of War, Lord Kitchener, who wrote in June 1915 to the British Foreign Office that, and I quote, If Russia had to find troops to meet an invasion of Finland by Sweden, the situation in the Eastern Theatre would become critical. The neutrality of Sweden is more important at the present time than preventing food and contraband reaching Germany. End of quotation. The second factor of significance to Sweden's favourable negotiating position with the Entente was its more sheltered geostrategic position, which effectively meant, in stark contrast to Norway, that Anglo-French naval power could not be projected effectively against them. In the words of a British First Sea Lord, Sir Henry Jackson, it would be absolutely impossible to force the Baltic in the event of war with Sweden. Sweden's favourable geography also contributed to the third reason, that the Entente powers needed the northern Swedish rail network to keep its supplies running into northern Russia. Hammarskjöld was certainly well aware that any pressure placed on Swedish shipping by the British could be effectively countered by threatening punitive measures against Allied shipments on Swedish railways. Yet although possessing a stronger position than other neutrals, Sweden was still to pay a high price for the blunt manner of its dealings with the Entente, and Swedish shipping was frequently stopped from sailing, or its cargo seized. The rights and duties of a neutral power and its nationals, as the authoritarian Hammarskjöld endlessly reminded the Entente, were a legal right encapsulated in the Hague Conventions, but his reluctance to bend and negotiate trade agreements with Britain and France led to food shortages and worker unrest. In general, the longer the war went on, the less willing were Britain and France to tolerate Sweden's Baltic trade with its southern neighbour, and as the blockade against Germany began to bear fruit after 1916, the restrictions on imports permitted into Sweden continued to mount, and considerable economic hardship was the result. By late September 1916, even the unbending Swedish government had come to believe that negotiations should be begun with the Entente. A Swedish delegation was dispatched to London, but they were mentally unprepared for the British demands, demands which initially included preventing re-export to Germany, providing economic data to verify that process, as well as improve conditions for the transit of supplies to Russia via northern Sweden. The Swedish negotiators in London believed their economic and strategic position was still stronger than it actually was by this stage in the war. By January of 1917, the negotiations were still ongoing, but the British side kept adding new demands as reports reached them of the worsening economic position in Sweden particularly the introduction of bread rationing in December of 1916. Yet the Swedish delegation still refused to relinquish its neutral right to freedom of trade, and the negotiations seemed to be going nowhere. But then, a series of disasters struck Sweden in the following months. First, the German campaign of unrestricted submarine warfare was launched in February, which the British responded to by seizing most neutral shipping in its ports, including a large portion of the Swedish merchant marine. Second, and far worse, in April of 1917, the United States joined the war, which soon saw a near-total embargo on Swedish imports put in place. And lastly, the Swedish bargaining position was also not helped in this same period by the gradual collapse of the Russian army as a viable fighting force, as this meant the value of the Swedish transport network in shipping supplies to Russia likewise fell precipitously. The Swedish negotiators were now faced with what seemed like a series of ultimatums, with demands regarding shipping and iron ore that had to be met in full if the Allied blockade was to be lifted. In desperation, Sweden turned to both its fellow Scandinavian countries and to Germany to try and obtain the necessary supplies of foodstuffs and coal, but these efforts met with limited success. 
The Swedish position was certainly not helped by the near total failure of the harvest of 1916, as food shortages became more and more noticeable. Broad sections of Swedish society now began to suffer a significant decline in living standards. Faced with such brutal import restrictions, the Swedish government responded in a similar fashion to the other Scandinavian governments. Maximum prices of essential goods were introduced, the distribution of raw materials regulated, housing rents controlled, and the state became a buyer of key food imports such as wheat. The number of government commissions and boards designed to oversee the Swedish economy ballooned. The post-war social democratic consensus regarding a strong central government with broad responsibilities for economic planning and welfare for its citizens began here, even if much of the apparatus was somewhat reluctantly introduced by broadly conservative governments. There was an attempt to shift patterns of food consumption over to a low-fat, low-meat diet by switching to a diet based on potato flakes, mushrooms and carrots. But national diets are strongly ingrained cultural institutions and shifting them is never quick nor easy. For workers used to a dinner with potatoes, pork and butter, it was simply too hard to adjust to herring and turnips. By 1917, a typical Swedish worker was eating only 26 kilos of meat a year, compared to 126 kilos in an average pre-war year. The same sort of decrease occurred with butter, 46 kilos down to only 3. Yet despite such unprecedented and sweeping measures, by early 1917, Swedish imports had fallen to less than 50% of pre-war levels, while food prices rose at least 40% on average, although some items suffered a 250% increase. Black markets flourished, and food began to be increasingly scarce for much of the Swedish population, despite theoretically tight state control. Eventually, there was no choice but to introduce rationing, with bread, flour, meat and milk rationed in 1917, and even potatoes, the country's staple crop, following in 1918. Even with this extensive rationing, the situation began to look nervous for Sweden's political elites, as soldiers started protesting against insufficient rations and distributed revolutionary leaflets in their barracks. Then, in May 1917, the Social Democratic Party split into a reformist and a revolutionary wing, an event that would soon appear even more threatening once the Bolsheviks had seized power in Russia that same autumn. Unrest in Sweden at the food situation was increasing in 1917, and just after Lenin had passed through Stockholm to buy a coat on the way to Petrograd, heavy-handed policing of hunger marches by Swedish police caused a great deal of unrest and tension, which was diffused only by the dismissal of Hammarskjöld, who had begun to be ridiculed with the name Hungerskjöld, in order to allow a new policy of engagement with the Allies. Once again, as we have so often seen, a neutral government not involved in the war had been brought to the point of collapse by the economic effects of the Allied blockade. With the removal of Hammarskjöld, strenuous negotiations now began in earnest, but even with the many structural advantages Sweden possessed, its negotiators were now facing an Anglo-French-American bloc that simply possessed too much raw economic power to resist. In May of 1918, a basic agreement was finally reached. Sweden was once again permitted to import large quantities of grain and fodder from the outside world, but in return, the huge iron ore exports to Germany had to be reduced by 2 million tonnes a year, and half a million tonnes from the Swedish merchant marine had to be temporarily given over to the Allied cause, just as the Norwegian marine had already been press-ganged a year earlier, in April 1917. Indeed, there had been some in the Anglo-American negotiating camp that had wanted to squeeze Sweden still further by demanding a total ban on iron ore exports to Germany 
but the desperate need to support Italy in the aftermath of its defeat at Caporetto meant that this demand was modified in return for securing access to the Swedish merchant tonnage. Although Germany protested, Berlin too recognised the pressure Sweden was under, and was not willing to risk a hunger-driven revolution in Sweden and the concomitant political chaos that would follow. In addition, by this late stage of the war, Germany had managed to build up a significant stockpile of Swedish iron ore, so it would not be impacted in the short or medium term by any reduction in its exports. Germany was instead able to put the boot in in other ways. The somewhat forced involvement of Sweden's merchant marine on the side of the Western Allies meant that it would now pay an increasingly high price when encountering German U-boats, and by the end of the war, some 249 Swedish ships had been lost and 659 sailors killed. Okay, so moving on now from the blockade and the Swedish economy, and instead turning to the development of a concept of neutrality within Sweden during the war. The First World War certainly saw a deepening attachment to the concept of neutrality within Sweden, and in this topic I am greatly indebted to Lena Sturtfeldt's excellent chapter, From Parasite to Angel, Narratives of Neutrality in the Swedish Popular Press During the First World War. Prior to the war, Swedish attachment to neutrality was situational, and as already mentioned in the last podcast, Sweden almost became involved in both the Crimean War, as well as nearly siding with Denmark against Prussia in the wars over Schleswig. Yet despite these close shaves, by the onset of the First World War, Sweden was able to draw upon an impressive, if partly accidental, tradition of abstentation from international conflict, and a neutral tradition had begun to emerge. During the war itself, many Swedes were split into two groups. There were those who still saw neutrality as mere selfish passivity and degeneration, even unmanly, and instead looked back longingly to a more glorious Swedish imperial past, and their victorious struggles at Narva or Lutzen, and who wished for involvement in the Great War to rejuvenate their country in some kind of social Darwinist fashion. One Swedish newspaper wrote of this in 1917, a shadow of contempt, shame and distrust hangs over us, lining our pockets at the belligerent's expense. A neutral nation lacking true passion, devoid of suffering and sacrifice, with no sense of community, solidarity or even meaning. But increasingly, there were also those in Sweden who held a much more positive view of Sweden's non-aligned status. Grateful both to have been spared the horrible fate of Belgium and believing in the moral virtue of neutrality as a stance in and of itself upholding the values of impartiality, objectivity and reason, as well as compassion and empathy, traits that the belligerents were believed to have largely lost. Given the emphasis those rejecting neutrality for Sweden placed concerning unmanly neutrality, it is worth noticing that the most treasured Swedish hero of the war was, indeed, a heroine, a nurse called Elsa Brandstrom, commonly known as the Angel of Siberia, who took care of German prisoners of war in Russia. Brandstrom became a personification of a new Swedish role in the international arena, as a champion on the fields of mercy instead of battle. By the end of the war, the latter narrative about neutrality had come to dominate the Swedish domestic arena, and provided the blueprint for Swedish cultural neutrality during the interwar period and later Second World War. The long shadow of former Swedish imperialism that had lingered over Swedish self-perception was finally beginning to fade for good by the end of the First World War. That mention of Elsa Brandstrom brings us somewhat neatly onto a brief overview of Sweden's humanitarian activities during the war. The most important Swedish humanitarian operation began in the summer of 1915, up until February of 1918, which saw the exchange of more than 63,000 wounded and sick prisoners of war between Russia and the Central Powers via neutral Sweden. 
the Swedish Red Cross was nominally in charge of all this, but the Swedish Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Swedish Health Department, as well as the state-owned rail network were also closely involved. In Sweden, just as in other European neutral states as we have previously seen, the boundaries between military and humanitarian work, national and international, public and private, were inexorably fluid and blurred. Germany usually shipped wounded or sick Russian prisoners of war via a steamer to Sweden, where they were entrained and transported from Trelleborg in the south to northern Apparanda at the Russian-Finnish border. Intense media coverage of these convoys within Sweden saw Swedes themselves flock to see the wounded pass by, and for many it was the first direct experience of the war. The Swedish Red Cross also became involved in the monitoring of treatment and conditions for prisoners in internment camps, and also began distributing so-called small gift parcels, letters, food, clothes, books and medicine to Siberian prison camps. Some 40 trains, with over a thousand wagons, were sent to Russia during the war, and it was Elsha Branstorm herself that helped to supervise many of these trains. Whilst all of these activities did raise the perceived value of continued Swedish neutrality to the belligerents, their primary effect has already been noted. The steady shifting of public perception over the value of neutrality and moving steadily towards a new aspiration, that of being a humanitarian great power. Yet it is also important to state, as one historian has noted, Swedish humanitarian activities were, in general, clearly in favour of the central powers, especially Germany, with very little relief work being undertaken for the Entente, and even the work undertaken in Russia was often done with an eye to hampering the spread of revolution and Bolshevism. The strong pro-German tendencies in Sweden was permeated humanitarian endeavours as well. Now it's time to round off our discussion of neutral Sweden in the First World War with a look at Finnish independence and the challenge that presented Swedish neutrality, with two issues in particular being of foremost concern. Firstly, the thorny issue of the Arland Islands, and secondly, the Finnish Civil War. So beginning with the first challenge to neutrality, that of the Arland Islands. After a breakdown of central imperial authority and political chaos in the early days of the Soviet Union, a declaration of independence was issued by a new Finnish Republic in December of 1917, and this was recognised shortly after by the equally new Soviet government. This sudden collapse of Russian power in Finland temptingly changed Sweden's strategic situation, and now brought to the fore the awkward issue of ownership of the Arland Islands in the middle of the Gulf of Bothnia. With a large Swedish population, and geographically so close to the Swedish coast, many in the Swedish government were keen to use this opportunity to reacquire them, even at the cost of alienating a new Finnish government and an obvious ally. The Swedish king in particular remained preoccupied with the idea of Swedish sovereignty over the Arlands. In February of 1917, Gustav V had travelled to Copenhagen to see his Danish counterpart and asked that he would approach the Russian Tsar on his behalf to suggest ceding the Arland Islands to Sweden upon the conclusion of the war. The Danish King Christian agreed only if Gustav would do the same in Berlin regarding the post-war status of Schleswig. Needless to say, this approach was not taken any further by either monarch. As previously mentioned, Russia had re-fortified the islands at the start of the war, a clear breach of the 1856 prohibition resulting from the Crimean War, which in the eyes of the Swedish government threw the legal status of the islands into dispute. When 7,000 Arlanders then signed an address to the Swedish king, asking to become Swedish subjects again as they had before 1809, this created a casus belli that the new liberal social democratic government in Stockholm was keen to act on. 
such an action by Sweden could then also be interpreted as being in line with Woodrow Wilson's idea of national self-determination. In early 1918, there were also frequently exaggerated reports percolating in Stockholm of alleged Russian atrocities on the islands, and the emerging civil war in Finland lent an increased urgency to the question of Swedish intervention on possible humanitarian grounds. With the treaty null and void, the Russian Empire collapsing, and a petition in its back pocket, in February of 1918, the Swedish government decided to send troops to occupy the islands, the first time Swedish armed forces had been ordered abroad since 1808. Once these troops were landed, they negotiated an armistice between the Finnish whites, reds, and the Soviet Russian garrison on the islands, and began to disarm them. The Swedish navy also began evacuating almost 3,000 citizens from the town of Pori, on the west coast of Finland. Although humanitarian motivations were proclaimed to be the sole motivation behind the landings, both the Swedish king and the minister of the navy were thinking primarily in terms of permanent annexation. The lines around Swedish neutrality policy were becoming increasingly blurry. Swedish troops were disembarked on politically disputed foreign territory, even if they were ostensibly deployed for peacekeeping and humanitarian reasons. The situation then became significantly more complicated a week later, however, when German troops also landed on the islands, in an attempt to pressure the Soviet government during the tortuous peace negotiations at Brest-Litovsk. To complicate matters further, the newly independent Finnish government, which still had legal sovereignty over the islands, refused to sanction the Swedish soldiers' presence on the islands. At first, it was hoped to have a condominium over the islands of Germany, with the occupation of the islands being divided between the two countries. But by the end of April, the Swedish government withdrew its forces, worried about upsetting relations with the new Republic of Finland and the diplomatic consequences with the Allies of any form of military cooperation with the German army, no matter on how small the scale. Germany had already formally agreed with Sweden's right to negotiate over the island's defortification and future sovereignty, whereas the Western Allies had conceded no such right. The British ambassador to Stockholm certainly took every opportunity to remind the Swedish Foreign Minister that although the Allies generally backed the Swedish claim to the islands, any solution to this problem must be achieved through diplomatic agreement with all the signatories of the Paris Treaty of 1856, and not a unilateral Swedish military adventure or a Swedish-German bilateral agreement. The concerns of the Western powers could not easily be dismissed in 1918, despite German military dominance in the Baltic, as Sweden was at this time still negotiating a vital trade agreement with the Allies that would not be signed until May. Germany, on the other hand, was keen to see the islands demilitarised via its own negotiations with Soviet Russia at Brest-Litovsk, since any future shipments of iron ore to Germany in a period of potential hostilities would then be far less prone to interdiction, and some German industrialists even pushed for an outright annexation by Germany. Germany certainly had no wish to involve Britain or France in Baltic affairs, and were irritated by Swedish insistence on involving them in any discussion about the future of the islands. To Swedish political leaders, it seemed reasonable to assume, in the spring of 1918, that Germany would remain the dominant power in the Baltic, and that Sweden must adapt itself to that reality. Therefore, in May 1918, the Swedish government signed a secret agreement with Berlin, but effectively ceded control of the Baltic to the German fleet in return for the Arland Islands. No one in Stockholm could then have anticipated the sudden collapse of German military power that occurred later in the autumn, and the futility of trying to make deals with Germany over the future status of the islands. Their status would now be decided by Britain and France at the peace conferences and the League of Nations in the immediate post-war world. 
although this strays somewhat into the interwar period, it is worth mentioning the referendum held on the islands in June of 1919, in which 95% of the population voted for reintegration with Sweden, but whose validity was rejected by the newly formed League of Nations under pressure from Britain, who feared that by Sweden, Germany would then indirectly gain greater control over the territory. Sweden gave in to this diplomatic pressure, and the end result was that the islands remained under Finnish sovereignty, as they still are to this day, but with autonomy in internal matters and the use of Swedish as the only official language. Sweden had effectively resisted the temptation to conspire with Germany to acquire the islands, and had instead withdrawn its forces to gamble on the prospect of receiving the islands as part of the post-war peace negotiations. This gamble failed, but it did mean Swedish neutrality was, at least, not sullied any further, and relations with its close neighbour Finland were not soured right from the very beginning. Now we move on to the second challenge to Swedish neutrality resulting from Finland, which although also partly linked to the islands, was the almost immediate deterioration of the political situation within the new Finnish Republic, and the start of a state of civil war, beginning in January of 1917. Whilst this conflict will be covered later on in another podcast, for our purposes right now, it is enough to say that the war was fought between socialist and communist-inspired forces known as the Reds, and a more conservative German-led faction called the Whites. The Swedish Social Democratic government was placed in an invidious position. On the one hand, the Finnish Whites were the legal government, and therefore should be supported, but on the other hand, the Finnish Reds were obviously far closer ideologically to the Swedish Social Democrats. In the end, diplomatic backing was given to the Whites, with the Reds condemned as undemocratic, although the former position of neutrality was to be maintained, the sympathies in Swedish society were evenly divided between the two sides. Many Swedish army officers and business leaders certainly disagreed and wanted formal Swedish involvement in the war, and so formed a society for recruiting Swedish volunteers called Finland's Friends. These Swedish volunteers were then formed into a special brigade to support the Whites, with approximately 1,000 men making the journey. Some 200 Swedish officers and 400 NCOs were also allowed to take temporary leave from the Swedish army to fight with this volunteer brigade, which was actually more of a battalion, with some of these men also serving as staff officers in General Mannerheim's headquarters, or as commanding officers in artillery and engineer units. Then, to make matters worse, after threatening to resign, the Swedish foreign minister got his way, and Swedish war material was secretly shipped to Finland, in addition to an already extensive illegal arms trade that was being carried out in private by Swedish industrial interests, and silently accepted by the government. In addition, four Swedish Red Cross ambulances, as well as a field hospital for military horses, were dispatched to Finnish cities to care for wounded. But this humanitarian action too came to be tarnished, as the medical staff served under the operational control of the white Finnish army, with Red wounded officers often refused treatment. In the interventions on behalf of the Whites, both political and medical humanitarianism were compromised. German troops had been involved right from the start of the conflict, but the Finnish Whites also appealed directly for help from Stockholm. Sweden had already become indirectly involved, as the German army had already trained around 1,100 Finnish nationalists, so-called Jager troops, which fought on the northern flank of the Eastern Front during the First World War, and later became the core of the Finnish army after 1917. These men had mostly travelled to Germany via Sweden, generally with the full knowledge of the Swedish government of what was occurring. Germany in February also tried to link Swedish involvement in the war to the future of the Ireland Islands, but even the ever-keen Swedish king realised that a military expedition to Finland was a political impossibility at that moment, with Sweden having both a social liberal government that had little ideological sympathy for the Finnish whites, as well as a Swedish population that was, 
by this point in the war, strongly attached to the moral and cultural values of a neutrality policy. Faced with this continued Swedish intransigence, German policy switched to backing Finland ownership of the islands, as it was felt they might prove a more reliable ally in future. Moreover, the Finns themselves held out the prospect that they might cede the islands to Germany in return for military assistance. Certainly, the aid rendered to the Finnish whites can be considered far greater than formal neutrality would allow, which is perhaps unsurprising given the long-standing historical and cultural ties that bound the two countries. Tolerating both armed shipments and an entire Swedish brigade clearly undermines Sweden's neutrality, especially compared to Denmark and Norway, who placed formal legal barriers to their citizens' participation in the war. Only the Swedish Navy's already mentioned evacuations from Pori can perhaps be considered in line with Sweden's formal neutrality commitments and newfound humanitarian principles. Okay, so just a few remarks now to round off this overview of Sweden's neutrality in the First World War. Sweden, I think, can be regarded as the safest of all the northern neutrals in terms of direct threats to its territory. It was shielded from any real British naval threat by strategic geography, a German threat was neutered by the vital supplies of Swedish iron ore, as well as the close cultural links. And the threat from the old enemy Russia quickly declined to insignificance, as the Imperial Russian army gradually fell apart on the Eastern Front during the war. Certainly, given the forces available to Russia and its poor logistical capability, in combination with the limited transport infrastructure of northern Finland, it is genuinely hard to see how Russia could ever have pushed through the mighty Swedish fortress of Boden or defeated the Swedish army in the field. And why risk any such attack when the Anglo-French transit trade was reliant on passing through northern Sweden with vital supplies? This very security helped to give neutral Sweden a great deal more diplomatic leverage with which it was able to resist the sort of diplomatic and economic pressure applied to both Denmark and especially Norway. Swedish neutrality was clearly an altogether better respected concept compared to the treatment meted out to Denmark and Norway, and indeed the Russian government did repeatedly urge the British to moderate their war trade dealings with Sweden, and this pressure paid off, as Britain then made a significant concession on the treatment of iron ore and its contraband, a significant modification of its general blockade policy. Whilst there is no doubting Stockholm's general willingness to indulge Berlin's wishes from time to time, it never truly came close to joining the war on its side, even when given a substantial offer to do so in 1915. And as we will see in the coming interwar period and the next general European conflict, Sweden emerged from the war with a genuine and strengthened commitment to the concept of neutrality, a concept that had previously faced substantial internal criticism prior to the Great War. Okay, that's everything for this week. If you have any questions about this episode, or just want to get in touch, then my email is historytompod at gmail.com. I'm also more than happy to provide any further reading suggestions for the issue covered in this podcast. Next time on the History Matters podcast, we will be moving on from the First World War and looking at Sweden first in the interwar period, and then, like with Switzerland, proceeding all the way through the Second World War to the end in 1945. A Swedish neutrality does endure for significantly longer than most of its European contemporaries, and may also split the next episode into two parts as well. I'll have to see how much suitable reading material there is. You can't do anything without good sources. Anyway, thank you very much for listening, and until next time. Yeah.